Hey, what's up, everybody? This week, I'm speaking with Dr. Victor Eric Ray and Nadira Farifoli, um, two people that I have admired for so long, um, who I had in mind when I launched this show a year and a half ago. Um, I'm so grateful to finally have had the chance to talk to them. Um, this is our last, I guess, serious episode. Um, we have a special panel discussion next week. Um, I'm not going to spoil the topic now. Um, and then we're going to take some time off for a little while. Um, much needed time off for a little while. Um, but until then, uh, this is episode 66 of Untenured Tracks. So, uh, this week on Untenured Tracks, it's a, a I, like whenever I say it's like a special episode, it reminds me of like 80s shows where like this is like a special after school episode. Um, and maybe for some of you, this is like a special after school episode. Um, but two people that I've wanted to have on um, for a very long time both graciously agreed to come and do the show together. So, um, today we have Victor Eric Ray and Nadira Farah Foley. Um, and so usually, like, for people who listen to the show for a while, usually the way things go is that I ask whomever is on to talk, talk about something that they're working on that they're excited about. Like, whether it came out today um, or whether it's an idea that they had 10 minutes ago. Um, as long as people are excited about it, then I can be excited about it. Um, and just my strength is, is encouraging you to sort of geek out about your work. Um so now with the two of you here, I, I guess it's kind of like a, a stare down. Like, who wants to, to start geeking out about their work first? Um, we didn't prepare any anything in advance about, like, order of presentation because that's, like, formal work and that is not my my strong point. Ironically, as the president of a, of a conference, uh, the formality is, like, I just... That's part of academia that I, I'm not down with. So... Um, I suppose whichever one of you wants to, to volunteer um, to start uh, talking about whatever it is you're working on that you're excited about, and then we will to see how the conversation goes from there. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Victor seems like the kind of person who just stare me down for like a hot minute, so I'm just going to go. Um, wow. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, so, I'm... Um, you know, in the dissertation stage. So I am, I've reached the point in grad school where I eat, sleep, breathe, dream about my dissertation. It might actually be unhealthy. Um, but something that I'm thinking about that I'm like currently really interested in that's an outgrowth of my dissertation work, but that's not actually going to make it into the dissertation is like all of the stuff around school reopenings um, and how some of the like race and class dynamics that we're seeing in who's pushing for for public schools, K through twelve public schools to reopen, who's opting for um, remote schooling in those contexts. Um, Victor, I know you're a parent, so I'm also really curious to kind of hear your uh, point of view and your experience. You're also in a totally different point of or totally different part of the country. 
Um, but this is, I've been seeing sort of a recurring pattern from Chicago to uh, my research site, which is uh, a suburb of an unnamed large city in the northeastern part of the United States, um, to a couple of other metro areas that I've been in contact with researchers in. And yeah, I don't know, I think there's something really, really weird going on. Um, and since we have, you know, a race scholar right here, yeah, thought that would be an interesting place for us to start. Uh, so you want my feelings or opinion on these reopenings or what's happening? I think I am in Iowa City, and so I have just the perspective from someone who is in one of the currently worst places in the country to be regarding the coronavirus. Uh, my son is eight, and we actually... Um, you know, are working from home, have the immense privilege of being able to work remotely. And we pulled him out of school before they shut down because I was, we were both paying very close attention to the news and we're like, this is much worse than our state is taking it. Um, and he has been, and then there's been, a whole host of um, uncertainties and sort of back and forth about whether they were going to go online or not, um, what that would look like. But we have had him online for the entire time um, and we'll continue to have him online throughout. Uh, that being said, um, I feel... You know, I know there's a lot of people, we are in the best possible situation to do this, uh, but you, he's in a public school and many of the students that he's in school with are not in the best possible situation to do this. So there have been issues around internet service or issues around access to technology to get online. Um, I am not sure. I think those things are I think they're still in the process of dealing with those things. And I think they'll be in the process of dealing with the fallout from those things sort of long term. Um, but I don't have, I have very strong opinions on sort of how the state handled it. I feel like the local school and the local school board did uh, as best they could given the restrictions that the state put on their local decision-making capacity. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't have, again, I have a lot of sort of disdain for the uh, bad decision-making of our state. I mean, we still don't even have, like, we've never had a real lockdown. We've never had, like, real mandates around any sort of protection. The... I mean, cases are just, there was an article in the Atlantic this week about Iowa, just like being overwhelmed, um, the hospitals being overwhelmed and the, the, it's a mess. Um, and so I have, I have a lot of feelings about how people with actual power to make interventions failed and what that's meant for everyone without power to make interventions. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I'm in northeastern Pennsylvania, and here the state government um, hasn't really provided any kind of oversight for school districts. So, like, district to district has, like, different 
uh, rules and, and protocol for it. So it, it really is like every child for themselves, it feels like. Um, where we live is pretty pretty small. Um, and so my daughter, my daughters are seven and two. And um, my seven-year-old is actually in class right now. Um, <laughs> as we're recording this, um, they, they tried to go back in person for a couple of weeks um, and then on like a hybrid schedule. Um, so she had, she was in person two days a week. Um, and that lasted maybe three weeks until enough kids at the high school got sick that they shut down again. Um, and then as far as my two year old goes, she's in daycare two days a week. Um, but we, we pulled her out today. Um, just because like the Thanksgiving numbers are coming back and it's, it's just, um, brutal here, like even in, in the middle of nowhere. So, um, and, but yeah, like watching the school board, like fight, about reopening and and all of that um a few weeks ago was really surprising and like i mean just at the state level too right like so we've seen how poorly higher ed has responded to this and like the number of um i have tenure so i can say this (laughs) the number of administrators who became administrators more because of the line on their cv and the pay bump and less because of like i want to be a leader like I think we're seeing that with so many politicians too. Like I, I wanted this position because it was like good connections and not because I actually wanted to be a leader and now I have to lead. What am I going to do? <laughs> yeah. In the conversations you saw your school board having, like, was it people really pushing for like a full reopening or what, what were you seeing? So at mine, it was, there was like a big fight um, at the school board meeting to reopen. Um, at which, which then spilled over, of course, into like all of the local Facebook groups, um, with people who were in favor of reopening, like really, really aggressively pushing for it. Um, and then I don't know what those conversations are like now that that they've closed, but they they went online. So we we know that they had a meeting with the state um, about like here here are the indicators that you have to use to determine whether or not you can reopen. Um, but I don't think anybody was ever actually told that they had to close. You know what I mean? Like, it's a really kind of stupid difference, <laughs> I guess. Um, like, like really putting the onus on the, on the schools to be like, you have to make the decision. And that's, I mean, again, that's consistent with the last nine months, right? Like, nobody wants to be the one caught holding the bag. And so nobody wants to, to like, actually take a leadership position because then people might people might get mad at you, you know? Yeah, I think what I've been really fascinated by is seeing how, like, over the summer, like after the you know the protests or during all the protests um, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, the parents I saw pushing for school reopening were like couching that advocacy in terms of concern for um, racially and socioeconomically marginalized families. Um, like, oh, like poor black kids really need school. Like, we need to reopen school. For them, um, and so it was really you know jarring seeing like white privileged parents make that argument, while black parents from across the socioeconomic spectrum were saying, "Well, wait, hold on, uh, we have concern. We actually aren't, you know, totally yeah. sold on this return to school thing." Um, and now here we are, you know, five, six months later. And at least at my research site, like that veneer of caring about what black people or lower income families want or need is like almost entirely gone. 
Um, and now it's just, well, my kid needs to be in school. My kid is struggling. My kid's mental health is, you know, imperiled by, you know, this hybrid or, or virtual learning model. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's just been really fascinating to just watch, uh, you know, especially in this year, I think there's been a lot of talk of um, us as a country having a, a racial reckoning. Um and I think what I'm seeing more recently, at least at my research site and, and in some other places, is kind of making me think about um, how how durable that reckoning, yeah. that awakening, maybe actually is or isn't. The, the classic paternalism of wealthy white people combined with the 24-hour news cycle making everybody's <laughs> memories like the equivalent of goldfish, basically. <laughs> 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 to well, put, to put a not-so-cynical spin on it. <laughs> yeah. We got Biden, so the reckoning's about over. <laughs> Folks, you're going to be like, we're back. We're colorblind again. Um, I, I don't think it'll be immediate, but I think it'll be trending in that direction. I think the best tweet I saw after Biden's win was from uh, Jabuki, who is just absolutely hilarious. Um, and the racism meter has been dialed back to get out. Yep. <laughs> Just thinking the same joke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just so perfect. <laughs> like, yay, we're back to normal racism. We're back to, can I touch your hair racism? Like, really? That's, that's a win? Uh... I can't, I can't follow up any kind of Jabuki. <laughs> any kind of Jabuki <laughs> reference. I'm not even going to try to I can't. I can't follow that man. I, I don't know that anybody can. Um, <laughs> the, the sheer brilliance of him. Sure. So should I? You want me to talk about what I'm? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I have too many projects, <laughs> but the ones that are um, Sort of day to day. So I I, re- I write about race and organizations broadly, and um, I have a paper that hopefully uh, things go well. I'll have up on Social Archive today with Pam Hurd and Don Moynihan um, combining their work on administrative burdens, which they talk about as sort of state as sort of frictions the state puts in the way of receiving policies. Um, combined with my work on racialized organizations to talk about, when we talk about racialized burdens, how many of the things that the state adds sort of unnecessary uh, paperwork to or waiting in line are heavily racialized. And in the paper, we argue that this is a way for uh, scholars in sort of public administration to not move away from, but to kind of augment older models of the street-level bureaucrat, right? And so when you think of the street-level bureaucrat and sort of individual discrimination that they can enable, uh, like one of the things we argue is like, yeah, they can only enable that discrimination because they're part of an organization in the first place. Um, And then two, uh, even a lot of times folks who are opposed to a policy, if they want to keep their job, in an organization um, have to follow the rules. And so if you can institutionalize rules um, that are 
you know, discriminatory or that and it slow things down or make it harder for, say, people to get benefits. Even folks who politically are opposed to that still, in order to work, uh, in order to get paid, have to sort of fall in line. And so it's a way to talk about the institutionalization of a policy that gets us away from individual discrimination models in a way that you can you can show, right? And so we we that we talk about things like um you know voting and the the republican efforts to stop black voters all over the country and how many of those were done through administrative burdens and are facially neutral right right colorblind um and so that's one thing that i'm interested in seeing sort of like an extension what i hope is an extension of both of our sort of lines of research. Uh, another thing that I'm working on that I'm really excited about is an edited volume with Jenny Mueller, who writes about racial ignorance. And so Jenny and I um, both draw heavily from the work of Charles Mills. In my work on race and orgs, I've kind of done it implicitly using Mills as kind of a as kind of like a methodology for reading and thinking about how organizational scholars have or have not um, limited our understanding of how race informs organizational formation. And then Jenny, Jenny's work explicitly draws on Mills around how um, white people in particular maintain ignorance around racial issues. And so we um, wanted to talk about how this is done sort of more broadly in sociology. We realized we, so I was, I was reviewing a book, a great race book, and I felt like I was reading the same um, literature review that I read like a hundred times. And uh, it was, you know, going through the history of race theory and showing like, well, here's where they were wrong and here's where they were wrong. And I was like, this is cool. But actually, I think race scholars have like a broad consensus that race is institutionalized or structural or, you know, whatever word you want to use. And I was like, the real problem is not necessarily like the small disagreements among us. The real problem is all the areas of the discipline that actually aren't engaging in race or doing it wrong when they do engage. And so how can we speak to those folks? So obviously, you know, Jenny and I have our specialties. We can't speak to the whole discipline. So we have asked, um, you know, we've invited chapters from people doing sociology of culture, sociology of family, sociology of health, to talk about how different areas of the, the discipline, you know, comparative historical, and how different areas of the discipline have maintained certain kinds of ignorance around race. Um, so those are the two projects that, I have others, but those are the two that um, I'm sort of working on day to day um, or thinking about the most. I have, I'm working on an annual review piece with David Embrick on, on diversity kind of broadly in the field. And um, then I'm slowly working on racialized organizations in a, in a book form, but I'm having like lots of issues with that. So, 
So you don't really have much going on, is what I'm gathering. Yeah, the, the <laughs> pandemic has really nothing. has really ground your research to a halt. The, the <laughs> pandemic has ground certain things yeah. to a halt in the sense that I'm I am behind, and in the sense that uh, I'm not traveling as much as I was, and mm. so. Um, you know, with an eight-year-old, I was traveling a lot. My wife was traveling a lot. And you, when you travel, you have sort of like built-in alone work time, mm-hmm. if you use it that way, with mm-hmm. no interruptions. Mm-hmm. And, um, or, you know, if there's an issue when you get a call, it's like a few minutes. It's not like I have to drop whatever I'm doing and go. And like now we're like working in shifts. And, like, one of us has our son, the other one is working, the other one has our son, you know, we're switching off and on. Um, But within that, uh, the interruptions are just constant. Mm -hmm. Um, And the general sense, I mean, I don't know about other people, but the general sense of, like, malaise and malaise, am I saying that right? Malaise and despair around, like, what's happening is, is a it's affected my productivity. Yep. Yeah, no. I, mean, I just want to pick up. Oh, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, even with the fact that you said you're behind, I got to say something, and this is not me coming at you, like, but it's just it's so frustrating to me that, like, none of us are behind. If we're, like, if we are <laughs> alive at the end of this year and have held on to even a shred of whatever sanity we came into the year with, like, we're coming out ahead. <laughs> And I just think that's so, I mean, I understand the tenure track, but, you know, you have these constraints. So I think that that is absolutely fair. And I would love to accept that premise and live my life according to it. (laughs) The, the, and this is not, I I think it's fair. And I think it's, I think it is the, the sane way to think about things right now. I also think the, pressure for tenure has not decreased in any way at all. The amount of, you know, my concern for my family here and out of here has not decreased at all and what I need to do on those terms. Um, So none of the external constraints, my teaching, none of the external constraints have decreased. so given that, it's really hard for me to be like, I'm doing great uh, because like everyone is fed and clothed and we're employed and healthy. And I realize relatively, I, I do, I realize relatively um, things are very good, uh, but I also realize from you know the particular structural position I am in at the moment, um, I have external pressures mm-hmm. that I feel compelled to meet. Yeah. No, absolutely. And and to be clear, like I totally get that. I mean, you know, in the spring, it's different from the, the tenure track timeline, but you know, one of the things that was really scary for me in the spring, um, when the pandemic really first hit, I was in the middle of uh, doing a year of ethnographic field work, school shut down. There went my ethnographic field work. Um, and yet my university, which happens to be the wealthiest university in the country, maybe even the world, um, was refusing to extend funding clocks for graduate students, right? So there were hundreds of us who were in this position of having 
access to you know field sites, archives, libraries, labs revoked overnight. Um, and yet the expectation that we would still graduate in a six year timeline was not being adjusted at all. Um, so that's what I'm saying. I'm like, I'm not like, I totally get it. Like we're, you know, we don't, we're not the ones running the show here, right? Like we still have these external constraints, but like, man, it just like drives me up a, up a wall that people who do actually have power to, you know, to make these conditions different for, mm-hmm. um, for vulnerable academics have really not done much. Yeah. Have done nothing really at all. And, and I don't think I really even seem to be aware at like, an entire generation of scholarship being, I, mean, I wrote this this morning, so that's why the, the phrasing is, is like fresh in my head, but like an entire generation of scholars being sacrificed at this altar of austerity, right? Like, especially, especially your school, right? Having, having the nerve to be like the monopoly man with his pockets turned out, like, I don't know, like, <laughs> there's just, there's no, there's no, I didn't get good tips this week, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Which is which is ludicrous. Like you and and I just I imagine like boards of trustees like sitting around and 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 not recognizing the irony or if if that's even the right word. Like just not recognizing the 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 lunacy of of what they're proposing and that that there are people who are, are still eating it up because this is the United States and people people eat up that that stuff without question. It's it's just it's maddening. I'll, I'll up the cynicism level and say I, I don't know the, uh, the the sort of I don't know that it's enough for to like talk about national trends, but I do think some schools have used this as an opportunity to like impose austerity and get rid of folks, and so it's not that they're doing nothing; they're actually using it to continue mm-hmm. to dismantle parts of the university that are troublesome to them in yeah. various ways, mm-hmm. including tenure protections. Further, I'm not. I, I understand the national trends. I understand tenure folks yep. are in the or tenure track folks are, have long been in the minority, uh, but they're using it to further come after those protections. Mm-hmm. And so instead of, I, I think I'll speak for myself, instead of what I would hope would say like, oh, this shows like, this pandemic shows we're all connected and we actually need like new forms of solidarity and new ways to yep. think about helping each other out. They're like, actually, let's remind you that you are on your own. Yep. <laughs> and... Uh-huh. and and that you can be cut off at basically any moment. And it's mm-hmm. like kind of a it's kind of a forced a pandemic work speed up, right? Yep. So if we were talking a minute ago about the the imposition of not lessening up of any of the external constraints, it's it's like kind of a work speed up and saying like you do this now or else. Um so <laughs> But but with a with a ninety second YouTube video of administrators saying thank you for all your extra unpaid hard work. <laughs> what I think is hard, right? Like you know, is how many of us are making it work, right? You know, even as we are working under these like impossible conditions, right? Like Victor's doing brilliant work. I'm somehow writing a dissertation, like. Um, and I, I really worry about like how, I don't know how that sends the message that like, 
no matter how austere things are or you know how little support we're given that like there will always be some of us who just make it work because we don't feel like we have any choice mm-hmm. um and then i feel like that gets used to sort of justify these like horrible unsupportive um you know under-resourcing of um precarious scholars yeah and i don't know what that says about us you know <laughs> like like the nerds have decided that we're like the nerds are going to keep studying what we want to study, right? Like we, we have these intellectual curiosities that we're so committed to that the sky is, is quite literally falling. And we're still like, still have that, that inclination to have our faces buried in our books. Right. And, and, and so I just, I don't know, like it's been, it's it's something I've been struggling with too, like within criminology, just the, the lack of leadership from the professional organizations and, just, just the lack of leadership from within the discipline, like somebody needs to step up, you know, and, and it's not just crim, right? I mean, it's, it's all arguably it's, it's probably every, every field. There's just no leadership there. So my, I, I think my thoughts about this, as far as us like still doing the work. And again, this is something that my, my wife and I were talking about recently is like, the issue is how much our identity is tied up in this work in the sense that like when I was waiting tables, I did, I left the restaurant. I did not give a damn what, like it could have burned down and I would have been like, Oh man, I got to find a new job. But I wouldn't have been like, right. And this, you know, you're again, speaking for myself, but like, your sense of identity gets tied up in the yep. work, right? And then there's a sort of the the way that um, sort of rewards are meted out and the way, you know, it it it's very different than, so like you hear people say this is just a job. And on the one hand, that is absolutely true, but it's very different to me than the jobs I had mm-hmm. that I thought of as just jobs. Yeah. Um, when I was doing things like waiting tables or, you know, working in an amusement park or other jobs I had before I became an academic. Um, and I think that administrators and other folks know that. And I think that that gets used against us, um, in moments like this. So yeah, no, I hear you. When people say like, "Oh, it's just a job," I mean, I think that that's actually more like aspirational than it is um, like an accurate <laughs> description of how most of us relate to our work. Like, I think it's a call uh, and a reminder to us that like we need to remember that what we are doing is work. We are laborers. We are not. You know, I think it's really easy for us to forget that. Um, and I definitely came into graduate school with somewhat of a romanticized idea of what this period of my life was going to be like. I was like, I'm getting paid to research and think. This is wonderful. Um, uh, and it uh, is. Those days. Yep. Those days. Yeah, I, remember, I remember thinking that for a it week. Was right <laughs> yeah. I was like, I held on to that for longer, maybe longer than I should have. Um, but what really jolted me out of it was, uh, you know, to get a little heavy for two seconds, but like my second year in grad school, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And that was actually like the wake up call for me. Um, I'm fine now, I think. Fingers crossed. Um, but you know, everything like I felt like everything ground to a halt when I got that diagnosis, and I 
I remember thinking like, you know, if I found out that I had like six months to live, like, would I be in graduate school? Like, is this what I, would I be preparing for my comprehensive exams? Like, is this what I would be doing? And that was like sort of what got me to think differently about like the work I'm doing as work. It is not my whole life. It is not my whole identity. Although I did ultimately conclude that like, even if I were dying, I'd probably stay in grad school, which is maybe a little scary, actually. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think that we do, like, I think it's more about just like reminding ourselves that like, yes, this is work that's important to us and maybe it's really bound up in our identities, but also like, you know, if any of us died tomorrow, our institutions would send out, you know, a very mournful sounding email and then the wheels would keep turning. With a job announcement attached to it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a similar kind of epiphany, um, but before I get to that, like part of my job is as the host of the show is to kind of anticipate what the people listening to this would want me to ask. And so Victor just slipped something in that I, I think people at home would, would like be screaming at me if I didn't um, follow through on. So what was it like working at an amusement park? <laughs> <laughs> what, what was, uh, what was that part of your life? Like <laughs> I only did it for a summer. It was kind of terrible. <laughs> I mean, I, so I, I had a lot of, like, um, you know, the kinds of jobs you have when you have a high school degree and nothing else. Um, I had a lot of jobs, waiting tables, working in coffee shops, just I sold, like, tickets in Times Square for, like, a couple months, a month and a half. Um, I just had, like, I just hustled. Like, I just, yeah. like, tried to make enough money to live. Um, and yeah i mean none of those jobs uh did i see as sort of like all that fulfilling i saw them as like i gotta pay my rent and figure out what i'm mm -hmm. gonna do um and then i'll say this also i you know thinking about this is like i don't like the word calling but thinking about this is like based on identity i also had these moments in graduate school where my mom you know had the kinds of jobs i was just talking about for her whole working life um and when she finally retired she retired from cleaning offices and houses and she did that for i don't many many years 10 years 15 years um, and i remember in grad school like i would always get this reality check because i would be complaining about like some the the problems of grad school uh i caught myself but the problems you of you can swear school. as much as you want to on this and, on this show um and, uh, okay i would be <laughs> i would be complaining about the problems of grad school and you know i would i would call my mom and uh more than once i would call her and i'd be getting ready to go into a rant about like you know something stupid a professor said to me and I would be like, how was your day? And she'd be like, I cleaned four houses. How was yours? And I'd be like, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, I'd be like, I'm, I had a great day. You know what, mom? I had a great day. I'm going to like back out. And these problems are actually small compared to mm -hmm. like cleaning four houses or cleaning two major offices in a day. Um, because like, I am getting paid to read and write and think. And there is something like profoundly privileged in that, even mm -hmm. though we have 
valid complaints about some of the oh, sure. procedures and some of the organizations, um, it's still compared to the, the kinds of manual labor that I did, <laughs> or the kinds of physical, I wouldn't say manual, but the kinds of physical labor that I did, um, and the kind of physical labor that my mom did for her whole working life. Uh, so I do, you know, have that in the back of my head as far as, like, what working at the amusement park was like. Like, compared to, like, having someone not like my article, you know, it was not, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why I hold on to that sense of, like, I tweeted something a couple months back where I was like, I honestly feel like I have the best job in the world. I'm just really underpaid. And that really is how I feel. We'll see if that, that holds when I, if I make it on the tenure track. But, like, that really is how I feel about being a grad student. Like, it's hard, and I grouse about it with my friends all the time. But, you know, I also have a moment, you know, probably most days where I'm like really genuinely excited about what I'm doing and where I feel like a a genuine sense of wonder about the fact that, you know, like I'm not someone who grew up like thinking I would get a PhD. And so like, I genuinely feel wonder at the fact that like, this is what I'm doing with my life. Like, this is not something that felt possible. It wasn't even something I was, you know, aware of um, until after I finished undergrad, honestly. Yeah, I was not under the impression that I was going to college. And so there's a, yeah, and and I'll, I'll just agree, like, getting to be in a conversation constantly with smart folks all over is also just a huge, huge privilege. Or like knowing someone read something you wrote is like crazy. Like I just like they never get over it, right? Like so there are those things about you know, I we I started being like super cynical and now I'm like <laughs> yeah, the, the, the we are <laughs> but yeah. But uh, yeah, those things are real I mean yeah, I really like them. I really think that it's pretty amazing. I think the highs and lows of this conversation really reflect everybody's attitudes during the pandemic. And I think we are we are three examples of the the mood swings of, of the last few months. I, I got to have a real cool moment um last night. So I've been I've been reading these books um to my daughter, the Unicorn Quest series by Camille Benko. Um and we finished it up yesterday and she was like, Daddy, you should write a book one day. And I've I just happened to have my book here. And so I showed it to her and she like gasped like, (gasps) (laughs) and I was, and she was like, you wrote that all by yourself. I was like, I did. And then the dedication inside is to her. And so I showed her that and she was like, like shocked. But then she was like, you should try to write a kid's book now. (laughs) And last night we finished, we finished the unicorn books and she was like, you should write another unicorn book. And I said, well, I can't because you know, it's not my idea. Um, it's, it's her idea. And she was like, she thought about it for a second. And then she was like, you should write an LOL book because she's obsessed with these LOL dolls. Um, I was like, well, I can't do that either because I don't, I don't own that. And she wasn't really satisfied (laughs) with that answer. (laughs) (laughs) So if you use this creative writing degree, I'm finishing up to, I guess, start writing YA fiction for my, my kid. (laughs) Because it's honestly more fun than the publisher parish grind, but I have the liberty of I have the luxury of saying that, right? 
Um, but yeah, like these epiphanies about like our place in the work is, is really important. And like, I think too often people are, people shy away from that. You know what I mean? Like, or at least like <sighs> expressing that or, or vocalizing that they, they've realized that like their, their university will go on without them or that maybe they've sacrificed too much of their work, too much of their life to the work, you know? So I don't know. I, I hope like, at the beginning of the conversation, you said, Nadira, something about, like, if we can get through the year with our sanity in place, then it's a win. I, I think if we can get through the year with, like, our humanity <laughs> in place, and, like, or or even maybe even restored, right, from people who have had now nine months in lockdown with their families, right, who may have never spent a whole lot of time with their kids before. Like, I'm guessing for a lot of people, it's going to be tough to go back to the way things were. Others are going to be like running out of here. The <laughs> first shot, <laughs> first chance there's a vaccine, run screaming from your home. Um, but I think a lot of people are going to like when August comes around. If everything is safe, I think there are going to be a lot of people who are like, "This is weird to go back on the school bus. This is weird to go back into a classroom." Like I kind of miss trying to teach with my kids screaming in the background. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I haven't had to teach during the pandemic, so that's not something, I don't know, hats off to anyone who's teaching in this context, because I truly can't imagine. But there definitely are things about pandemic life that uh, that I'll miss, and that I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about, like, what are the things, what are the, the practices and habits that I've developed over the last nine months that I want to make sure to keep? Victor's like, nah, take it all back, I don't want none of this. I'm like, you're, this is, you Stockholm, Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the pandemic is our friend. The coronavirus really cares about me. <laughs> like, I'm like, no, nah, this is not okay. Yeah. I can't walk down the street. This is not okay. But go on. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. So, yeah, I mean, you don't want to teach in sweatpants. Know. Like, teaching in sweatpants would be pretty good. Monday, I think it was maybe like March 16th, um, when at that point, you know, my partner was home, um, working from home for the first time ever, like everything had kind of shut down, at least here in Massachusetts at that point. And rather than jumping into work, I spent that week, really the next couple of weeks thinking about like, okay, you know, this is what the rest of 2020 looks like which was not something that any of my friends wanted to hear. They all were like, Matira, that's so doom and gloom, all of 2020. And I was like, yeah, all of 2020, like make plans accordingly. And that's what I did is I planned like, okay, what, are, you know, what do, do I need to rearrange parts of our apartment? Is there anything I need to buy? Um, what can I do to like make this sustainable? If my entire world is this, you know, one bedroom apartment in Cambridge, like what do I need to do to make living here, working here, sustainable and healthy um and so i've done things like you know my best friend who uh lives in new york and i started a weekly yoga date and if you'd asked me a year ago if i would be doing yoga with someone over zoom i would have been like none of that makes sense to me i don't even know what that is <laughs> um but now here we are you know nine months deep and we've done yoga together over zoom like once a week for most of the year and like that's been really beautiful and like something that i don't want to like go away once i'm able to like go outside and like breathe the air without a mask on my face um so i think like 
as much as this year has been really difficult, I think it's opened up space for me at least to work on relationships with people who aren't geographically proximate to me. And I think that's been really special. Um, it's also pushed me to work on my relationship with my partner because he's the only person who I get to see. And we are together more than any two humans should ever, ever be together. But like, you know, at the end of this year, I'm honestly as like, like cheesy, this is so cringe that I'm going to say this, but I actually feel more in love with him than I did at the beginning of the year. Um, this is going to be, that's going to be the line that you email me in like two weeks and are like, Andy, can you take that part out? Can you have, can we edit that I can't out? I have him know how much I love him. No, I Go to um, No, but that's what he's doing. Like, he's held me down. He's kept me sane this year. And then the other thing I've done, you know, this year, the other practice I think has been really huge for me is um, I have a writing group that I'm part of. So it's me and three other, um, you know, graduate students who are at a similar stage while working on our dissertations. And we hop on uh, Google Hangouts or Google Meet, whatever they change it to, um, every day at 8.30. And we write together for two and a half hours. Um, and that's been, honestly, like, the saving grace of my productivity this year is, like, having that structured space with people who, um, you know, are going to hold me accountable. And that's something that, like, I hadn't done pre-pandemic, but that I really hope to be able to continue in some form even once you know, maybe I can work in an office instead of in my living room and stuff like that. Nice. Yeah. I can't imagine two and a half hours to write, but I mean, but then I, well, I guess I kind of do though. Yeah. But I, I do. It's just like my focus has changed because academic writing just doesn't, I just don't feel it anymore. If that, if that makes any sense, but like the other stuff that I do, so I'm starting my MFA next month. And so like, Whoa. yeah. I'm finishing yeah. a I'm finishing a master's in creative writing right now, um, and then trans, like moving that into the MFA. So like the screenwriting stuff comes easily. Like I open Final Draft and it sings. I open Word and it's like this sucks. <laughs> this is this is bad, you know. And like the mountain of books that I bought for research for this this other project that I had going that I've had going on for a few years and was finally ready to like drill down on in February. Like I got into a good flow. Um, and then everything shut down and I was like, no, actually like writing the history of, of major cases and crime policy does not feel <laughs> like super appealing right now. You know, all these texts that I have on like different revolutionary case studies and biographies of rev uh, revolutionaries is like, it's really interesting. And like, I, I love it, but it's, it's hard to watch the news all day and then be like, I, let's go read about, you know, Talleyrand trying to screw over Napoleon. <laughs> <sighs> and so but this, but, but the other stuff is and like the creative stuff is has been good and like finding ways to kind of bring in the humanities and, and get academics to start thinking more creatively has been like a fun service challenge so one way to stay busy no i love that that's super cool so you are going to write like a great american novel during <laughs> the great american during ya novel <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I was I was thinking about the last day, like trying to organize table reads to to raise money for an organization that I launched over over the pandemic. We had had a virtual crim conference a couple of weeks ago, and so just doing like a a table read of like Goodfellas or or something, and just going through like all of all the crime movies that would be 
amusing to run, but especially with like an all, a cast of all academics and, and how, uh, how do I put this nicely? How, how, how distinct academics personalities might be sometimes just imagining, <laughs> imagining different people I've known throughout my career, like trying to read as Joe Pesci and Goodfellas is, <laughs> this is a source of endless amusement, <laughs> right? Um, but this isn't a, this isn't about me. So we we have veered so far from like how these conversations usually go that I I feel obligated to try to bring it back in a little bit. Um, and and so especially with you, Victor, I'm I'm really curious. Like when you when you teach about race, what kind of what kind of reactions do you do students have like when you're talking about your own work? Uh, how so? I mean, there's a lot of ways to answer that question. Okay. So <laughs> when I'm talking about my own work, mm -hmm. usually if I teach, so usually I teach some of my like public stuff early on to just mm -hmm. kind of introduce to me, but I usually don't even talk about it. Like really? I'm just like, read this stuff or, you know, if you have questions and then I move into like, so it depends which level we're talking about. Are we talking about mm -hmm. undergrads? Are we talking about graduate students? So, um, and then it depends which class, right? Is it my race class or is it my more broad inequalities class? But I think, um, I was at the University of Tennessee for five years, and I think things start to change once students get to know you. So early on, and I would say, you know, I adjusted my teaching style to the place. So early on, uh, I had what I think a lot of assistant professors do is you want to teach them everything. And so I had like way too much material, too many readings, too many movies. Um, I learned to scale back. Uh, and I also, I don't, don't know. I mean, I, I feel like there's always going to be people who disagree, but I'm like, cool, disagree. Like everyone can disagree, but where's the data? Like, where's the evidence that you're using to make your case and ground your arguments in the empirical literature? And if you force students to do that, um, it's very different. And so I, I don't know that, oh, with things changing, I would also say my first couple of semesters, I probably got a lot of pushback. And then both between students selecting in and me mm. altering my teaching style, like that just kind of went away. Like hmm. I have students who, you know, I, and I, I actually like, I like, arguments and disagreements in the classroom if they're done within the parameters of respect because they can be super generative mm -hmm. um but yeah so i don't know i just i don't necessarily ever have like major issues i will say um when the white supremacists were coming to speak at the University of Tennessee campus, they asked us to teach about that. Those classes were hard and somewhat combative. Um, hmm. And I was, I was also like, you know, it's, it's indicative of sort of the seriousness with which universities take this stuff is they just like sent out an email saying that like professors should talk about this in their class. And like, I teach about this stuff every day and am totally prepared to talk about it. Like, 
I, you know, I do interviews all the time. Like I, I am, I am at least okay talking about this stuff frequently. Um, and for that, so one for the university to send out uh, email to like chemistry professors and say talk about race in your class is just like absolutely disrespectful and like frankly like they should not do it like i don't want those professors talking about this stuff in class because like they might make things worse no disrespect but like i'm not talking about chemistry in my race class like they need to you know stay in their lane um and so so there's that but then the reaction from some students um not unexpected, but more vehement than when we were talking about readings or other things I had assigned, right? And so I was like, wow, if people who weren't kind of immersed in this material were dealing with this, uh, I don't know how they would respond because mm-hmm. they were they were intense. But day-to-day, like, day-to-day, it's no, like it's no big deal. Like I'm not stressed about teaching critical race theory or, Mm -hmm. you know, there's always the risk that I'm going to like end up on Tucker Carlson and I'll deal with that if it happens. Um, but I also like, I'm opening, I'm open to differing perspectives. Mm -hmm. I like debate. I like being wrong. You know, if I'm wrong, um, then I come back in and tell the students like, Hey, I made a mistake. (laughs) We had this disagreement last class. I went and did more research about it. And here's where I was right. Here's where I was. I I was wrong. And thanks for pointing that Uh out. And like that, I think, I think students should see that, right? Mm -hmm. Like we are not infallible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess I, when I ask the question, I, I always have undergraduates in mind because that's the only population that I teach. Um, I, I don't have grad students at, at Wilkes. Um, and I, I ask it because I'm, I'm always, it's always interesting to hear stories of undergraduates encountering information for the first time. Um, because I, I think especially, and it might be just something that happens like the longer that you teach, um, what you think undergraduates know and what they actually know, like are two, are two different things, right? So like I, I teach this, the class is called Murder, Monsters, and Mayhem, and it's a, a hit. Like it's that's the crime history class I developed. And when I taught it last last year, um, they had an assignment where I called it like a case file, right? So they had to come and show me their notes and like come and have like a one on one meeting with me to talk about the class. And I asked all of them like, what were their what cases did we cover that you didn't know about? And a lot of students told me that they had never heard of O.J. Simpson before, and I was I was like shocked by that. And so. Like, well, how, so just like talking to them, having lived through the case, right? Cause I was, I was in high school when it happened, um, talking to them about it and their perceptions of like what I introduced them to in class and like the news clips and stuff that we watched was really, really just fascinating, you know? So this just reminds me of teaching my race class and, um, uh, it wasn't O.J. Simpson, but it was Rodney King. We had mm. a reading that mentioned Rodney King. And I asked who knew who Rodney King was. Again, this was at the University of Tennessee. And my race class is actually at University of Tennessee. I had a lot of black and just generally students of color in it, like relative to the university population. Mm-hmm. And 
I asked this question and like only the black students knew, right? Or majority black students knew who Rodney King was and the white students didn't know. And so there's still moments like that. Or like when I talk about the nod, right? I use the nod, the black nod as an example of sort of like in-group code. Um, and it's another thing in which like, Sometimes a large proportion of the class has no idea what it is or what you're talking about. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, I have this general thing that happens to me every semester where I'm like, what am I going to tell students? And I get like this before teaching anxiety. And then I go in the room and start talking and I'm like, oh, they don't know any of this. Right. Like they <laughs> and, and not to be disrespectful to them, but I think we are always looking for the next new novel creative idea and we forget how long it took to get to that point of looking for the new novel creative idea and this happens to me all the time when i do public writing because the public writing is oftentimes really basic stuff and so the public writing for me it's like very different than the academic writing. The academic writing is often like the most novel or new or, you know, different twist on an idea. The public stuff, usually really basic description, gets like a ton of comments and a ton of feedback. People are like, I never thought of this. Um, whereas, yeah, if you do that in an academic, the reviewers are going to be like, <laughs> you're wasting our time, go away. Um, so, yeah, I think that idea about like what counts as knowledge what they yeah. know what the general public knows when you're writing is very different than mm -hmm. how we think about what is new knowledge or a contribution or yeah yeah because it it, it roots out like all of the biases that were in their education prior to coming to college right like how how american-centric their their view of the world is and especially like specifically like white american-centric their their sense of everything in the world is and then you talk to them about either current events happening outside of the country, right? So, like, when the, when the protests were happening in Hong Kong last year, right, um, my, my students were, it, it was, it was I, don't, I don't even know how to describe it. They were baffled. <laughs> they were, it was like, it was like watching a movie. It was like, this is, this is not something that's happening in this. This is science fiction. Like what we're watching right now with the, the images of the protesters, like covering the tear gas canisters and the, and the orange traffic cones and dousing them with water or whatever it was to put them out. Like this is, this is something that people our age are doing. And then like bringing in like other areas outside of sociology. Right. I mean, I bring in a lot of like history, especially, um, it, it's just amazing, you know. The, you mean to tell me the American Revolution wasn't the most important revolution in the history of the world? Like, actually, actually, no, because they, the founders, were cowards who punted on the slave issue, um, and and didn't have any regrets for that, right? But if you want to see a revolution that was really a revolution, that's taught, let's read the Haitian Declaration of Independence, and you tell me, <laughs> you, you tell me. So like how how you feel after that, you know? So, so I'm curious about this. How do your students or yours, dear, deal with 
discordant information or stuff that like i i yeah i just like haven't had a big issue with it i think early on i did but i i don't feel like i do anymore so so i mean i only have taught uh graduate students um since my i'm in the education program here at harvard i uh have been a teaching fellow for courses for our master's students and then i also taught um I taught my own class last, no, two years ago. Um, and I did actually have undergrads in that. I think the, like, the hardest week uh, that we had was in my class on reconsidering meritocracy. There was a week on um, understanding meritocracy as, um, as racialized. And I think what was hard about that week, particularly for some of the students of color, was like trying to disentangle like you know reading uh you know things about at that point we had read about um you know the development of iq tests right and how like all that's you know rooted in a eugenics movement that is both uh ableist and also like deeply deeply racist um and so we're coming into the race week with all of that you know kind of under our belts and that week had gone fine people were like oh yeah iq test usually problematic and anything that's built on iq test usually problematic we should probably do away with that but like then moving up a level to think about how like literally every like every component of like this ideology that we call meritocracy is like racist um was so hard. i mean tears were shed it was the hardest week of that entire class um and i think it was because it's really hard and this is something i've struggled with i mean i think you know, when I started thinking a lot about meritocracy, gosh, how long ago was that? Maybe like eight years ago at this point. Um, it was really hard to disentangle like my personal sense of like having strived to, you know, get into a good college and then go to graduate school from like understanding these um, these structures as just like fundamentally unequal and unfair. Um, so when you were talking about, you know, how it's one thing for students to like read readings and it's another thing when we have to kind of talk about these things in a more concrete way based on either current events or something that's like happening in their world like that very much resonates with what i saw like the tears weren't over the idea of like oh you know maybe the sat is like rooted in some like racist eugenicist iq stuff it was wait but like that's how i've determined that like i am smart and that i deserve to be <laughs> my word <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. And like that was like, and I get it. Like it's super, super painful mm-hmm. um, to confront that sort of stuff. I mean, so that's, uh, yeah, I don't know how you deal with that. I mean, I think, you know, some people are willing to kind of wade through that pain of realizing that like, oh, maybe I've spent a lot of time and a lot of energy uh investing in a system and an ideology that is actually not totally compatible with other you know values i say i hold and some people that's that's too much right and so they're going to reject the new information that tells them like this is a huge structural like ideological problem and they're going to say no like we could tinker around the margins we could make that better because it's just too hard to um to think about really like what it would mean to dismantle that larger system. Uh, I like this conversation a lot. I had the privilege of having Kiese Lehman as a professor when I was an undergrad. 
And uh, I think I understand. So he, I always was like, I'm a theorist. Like I, I knew when I was an undergrad, like I wanted to do theory. Like theory was the thing that I was just fascinated by. And Kiese was just totally like um, very, very like not dismissive, but questioned theory a lot. And he was always like, and, and, and I took from his questioning of theory, not that he doesn't think it's important. I don't want to like misrepresent. And he might be like, Victor, you misunderstood what I'm saying. So <laughs> stop talking about it. But I think my, my understanding of it was like a lot of theorists and you see theory get muted this way, like in social movements of like, People critique other folks without thinking about how they're complicit in the systems that they're critiquing. And one of the things I try and maybe don't successfully do in my work and talk about, especially the, my work on racialized organizations, is be like, I work in a racialized organization. I understand that that means some things about my position in this organization, how I view meritocracy and self-worth. And it might mean some things about how much I'm willing for the organization to change. And I think that, you know, what I took from Kiese's reluctant, you know, in reluctancy about certain kinds of theory was the importance of like, thinking about how you are complicit or how you are not free from the structures that you're critiquing and what that what that means about you right and like to try and really really think through it and it's not it's not always comfortable right oh, it's deeply uncomfortable but i think like you know this is something that for me you know i'm i'm a queer black person and i'm from uh you know i grew up without money and like now i'm at harvard right and that's something like i think about every day like how is that and you know i, I think about the fact that like i critique elite institutions a lot and i like write about you know critiquing meritocracy as i sit at harvard <laughs> right um but I think, like, you know, and, and I don't feel like I have the answers to, like, how to do that. I don't know. Maybe I'm a hypocrite just for being here. Maybe I should have gone somewhere else. But um, I feel like, you know, at least being here and being um, cognizant and trying to just maintain a sort of constant vigilance and awareness of, you know, when I catch myself slipping up and, like, uncritically buying into, you know, some of the Harvard BS. Um, yeah, I think that's part of the battle, right? Like, I don't think that's going to fix anything on its own, but um, I know some people who are, like, uncomfortable even doing that, right? Um, mm -hmm. I was talking about this with a, a friend, and we were talking about how... Um, so my friend had said something like, you know, prestige journals, like, need to be abolished. Like, we, you know, need to do away with this idea that there's a hierarchy of you know, sort of where knowledge gets disseminated and some mm -hmm. outlets are better than others. The person they were speaking to was like, not trying to hear that. Like, <laughs> did not love that uh, idea. They were like, no, like, you know, those, those journals are just starting to diversify. Who's getting published in them? Like, you know, we're just starting to get a foothold. Now's not the time to abolish those things. Um, you know, you hear the same argument with like legacy admissions. Like I've talked to, I mean, yeah. 
That is historically when they get abolished, so... <laughs> <laughs> Once they let too many of us in. As soon as we start to get a foothold, that's typically when change occurs. Um, so you we know, may be headed there anyway. We might be headed there. Yeah, we're on to something. Um, right? It's like open admissions. Oh, black people are coming. Closed admissions. Uh, you know. Yeah. But it's interesting to think about how people want, you know, like how... You know, as, as marginalized people, if we've spent, you know, lots of time and energy sort of investing and in moving up through these systems, right, it can feel threatening right when you're about to kind of, you know, get to the top of the heap to suddenly be told, okay, now we're actually going to, you know, we're going to flatten this, we're going to level it out, um, which is something I hear from, you know, friends when I say, like, legacy admissions should go. And, you know, one of my friends was like, you would have double legacy babies because my partner is... Oh, a Princeton alum and, you know, a black Dominican. They were like, you would have black double legacy babies. Like, why are you advocating for doing that with legacy? And I'm like, because, like, (laughs) that's such a a failure of imagination. (laughs) If all I'm thinking about is, like, what's going to happen to my little black legacy babies? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like, you were saying that uh, you know, over the course of this conversation, we've sort of hit all the highs and lows, and I think knocking them out in, you know, an hour or so, that's just like a, a normal Monday for me. <laughs> I think that's the title of this episode. <laughs> I think, I think, uh, I'm going to write that down so I don't forget. Hey, Andy Wilczak again. So I hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. (laughs) So if you are untenured, and you are in any kind of academic discipline, or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field, and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenure Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H E Y D R W I L. Please 